Genesis chapter 6. I feel like I've got a little catching up to do after the last few weeks of being away, so get comfortable. <laughs> We're going to pick it up in verse 8, Genesis chapter 6, verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Noah became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. And so we're introduced to Noah. Noah is confirmed by the Hebrew scriptures, his existence confirmed as a person four different times outside of Genesis. Now Genesis refers to him, obviously, Genesis 6 through 9, and in other places, other genealogies. But when you step out of the Torah, the first five books, you get to 1 Chronicles chapter 4, or chapter 1, excuse me, verse 4, and in the lineage of Abraham, you find Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And then in Isaiah chapter 54, verse 9, talking about the regathering of Israel, something that is yet to occur but will occur by the word of God, says, for this is like the days of Noah to me, when I swore that the waters of Noah would not flood the earth again, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you, nor will I rebuke you. So both the Hebrew scriptures and the New Testament use Noah as a type of God's faithfulness to Israel. That is Israel going through tribulation in the same way that Noah and his family went through the flood, were brought through the flood waters that covered the earth, and yet God got them to the other side. And so that's a picture, if you will, of Israel. Then we hear about Noah again in the book of Ezekiel, the prophet, verse 13 and 14 of chapter 14, which says, son of man, if a country sins against me by committing unfaithfulness and I stretch out my hand against it, destroy its supply of bread, send a famine against it, and cut off from it both man and beast, even though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job were in its midst by their own righteousness, they could only deliver themselves, declares the Lord. So again, we get the righteousness of Noah declared in this third reference outside of Genesis to the existence of this man, Noah. And in the fourth reference, is still in Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 19, God says, or if I should send a plague against that country and pour my, out my wrath and blood on it to cut off man and beast from it, even though Noah and Daniel and Job were in its midst, as I live, declares the Lord God, they could not deliver either their son or their daughter. They would only deliver themselves by their righteousness. So four times in the Hebrew scriptures, we hear Noah as a man, existent and declared and confirmed to have lived. The New Testament comes along and refers to Noah six times. Six times, Luke chapter three, verse 36, in the genealogy, Luke's genealogy of Jesus Christ, we find the name of Noah. Hebrews chapter 11, verse seven tells us, by faith, Noah being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Then in 1 Peter, 
chapter 3, verse 18, a little bit more I want to read to you here, so just listen to this. For Christ also died for sins, once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who were once disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark. Peter would refer to Noah again over in 2 Peter chapter 2, and I'm just moving quickly through these because we have some things to get to tonight. 2 Peter chapter 2 verse, oh, verse 4, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, remember what we talked about on Sunday? Bene Elohim, sons of God, always a phrase used in the Hebrew scriptures for angels, and Peter confirming that says, if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And then further down in verse nine, it tells us, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the right unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. But the most significant New Testament reference, at least in my thinking, is spoken by Jesus. I've told you before, if Jesus refers to someone or something as historical, I agree, I'll accept it as historically true. If Jesus says Daniel was a prophet, Daniel was a prophet. If Jesus says Jonah was in the belly of a fish for three nights and three days, Jonah was in the belly of the fish. I don't care how outlandish the story might sound, if Jesus says it, I believe it. Why would you do that? Because I've never found Jesus to be wrong, not once. He's always right in everything he says, in all that he teaches, and he has proven himself throughout history to be spot on. So he declares Noah in Matthew chapter 24, and I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew 24 because it is the basis of our study through Genesis 6 tonight. Matthew chapter 24, on that great Olivet Discourse. Okay, Jesus up on the Mount of Olives, across the Cadron Valley, from the Temple Mount. A beautiful place. And he's up there, and he's, he's teaching, and he's illuminating, and he's bringing revelation about the end of times and what's gonna take place, and he gives an order, and I, we don't have time for it all tonight, but he says this. Matthew 24, verse 37, for the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. The final reference to Noah that's the fifth of six in the New Testament. The final one we find over in Luke chapter 17, verse 26, which repeats where Jesus again is repeated saying, and just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will also be in the days of the Son of Man. That is in the days preceding, running up to the second coming of Jesus Christ. So what Jesus declared is we should see a world very much like the world in Noah's day pre-flood in the pre-coming of Jesus. 
So we can look and learn, and all of a sudden, the relevance of Genesis chapter six, this ancient book, becomes very clear to us. Because what was going on then, we should see going on now, if in fact we are just before the coming of Jesus, as I believe we are. Now I know the song sings really well. I know it really pumps up the hearts of Christians nowadays. We get excited, we stand, we lift hands, we sing it out, we love to sing. These are the days of Elijah. Guess what? These are not the days of Elijah. No offense, but not literally. Not yet. I know what the song's doing, so we don't have to have that conversation afterwards. Well, Rick, we're supposed to be like Elijah, preparing the way for the Lord. I get that. I, I understand that. And the song is using some artistic license to say, hey, let's be like Elijah. But these are not the days of Elijah. Not yet. Jesus said in Matthew 17, verse 11, after the death of John the Baptist, so John had already died, who himself came to precede the coming, the first coming of the Lord, and Jesus said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. John was already dead. His apostles were asking him, they had, on the Mount of Transfiguration, or just at that time, are asking him, when does Elijah come? They had just seen Elijah up there talking to Jesus in that wonderful, marvelous moment where Jesus and Moses and Elijah are on the mountain and they saw this and they said, why does the Bible say Elijah must come? And Jesus says, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the son of man is going to suffer at their hands. The difference there is the first and the second coming. The first coming of an Elijah figure would be John the Baptist who at that point had been beheaded. In the same way, Jesus in his first coming would be crucified and killed, sacrificed. But in his second coming, Elijah will precede it. Well, Elijah hasn't come yet. And Elijah will come. These are not quite yet the days of Elijah. These are not the days of God's servant Moses. You know, we sing, these are the days of your servant Moses, righteousness being restored. Guess what? Not yet. Not in this world. You cannot declare to me that we live in a righteous world where righteousness is being restored. Well, Rick, wait a minute, wait a minute. When a person gives their life to Jesus, righteousness is restored, right? Absolutely, no question. Righteousness is at work by faith in Jesus, but righteousness is yet to be restored. As the Bible tells us, Isaiah 9, 7, there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. There is a day coming when righteousness, my friends, will be restored. And everything will be right. And while you may be right with God through faith in Jesus, this world ain't right. So really, these aren't the days of Elijah or Moses. These are not the days of Ezekiel. Yes, the bones may be rattling, but they're still dry. There is no flesh on the bones, the bones representing Israel as a nation. 
God says in Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 17, I will gather you from the peoples. I will assemble you out of the countries among which you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. And when they come from there, or when they come there, they will remove all its detestable things and all its abominations from it, and I will give them one heart. And I'll put a new spirit within them and I will take the heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. Oh, the dry bones will become fleshed out and alive and the spirit of God in the people of Israel. It's gonna happen. But these aren't those days just yet. Not yet. Close. But no, I was gonna say no cigar, but that doesn't seem appropriate in this description here. Close, but not yet. And these are not the days of God's servant, David. Hey, worship was wonderful tonight. I really enjoyed it. Could have gone on longer as far as I was concerned. But these are not the days of God's servant, David. Though there are great songs of praise in the church, it is nothing like it's gonna be in his coming. When at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue will confess Jesus Christ as Lord to the glory of God the Father. Oh, those will be the days of David. By the way, when the Bible says David himself is gonna be praising God right along with us. Can you even imagine that? You look down the row, oh, it's David. David? <laughs> these are not those days. My friends, these are the days of Noah. The days of Noah. Days of red flag warning. Do you see the red flags flying today? Do you note the issues in our world today? Are you aware of why Jesus would say it will be just like in the days of Noah? See, I see red flags all over the place. The term red flags, by the way, is a maritime phrase, an international protocol for sailing vessels developed in 1902, and it's still used today. Naval ships will fly a red flag when loading munitions. It's a sign of warning or hazard. And there are signs, red flags of warning, all over the place. Go back to the days of Noah. Noah didn't fly a red flag above the ark. The ark was the red flag. Greatest object lesson in the history of preaching. <clears throat> Think about that as he's hammering away. Judgment's coming. Hey, Noah, why are you building a boat? Because I got a float. The world's going to be flooded. This is coming. It's going to happen. Red flag warnings. And by the way, for anyone who says, man, the flood wasn't fair. It caught him off guard. No one was ready. God is harsh. God had been preparing the world for a thousand years. Do you understand that? That the warnings of a coming judgment of the earth was, were going on for a thousand years. From the prophet Enoch, who named his son Methuselah in his death it shall come, to Lamech, who was despairing and, and said, in Noah we're gonna find comfort. And then finally to Noah, red flags of a global flood, and then Noah starts building this ark. By the way, we're gonna look at chapter six in two parts tonight. The first part is the days of Noah, and the second part, I hope we have time to get on board a little bit. But the ark of Noah was itself in, in building, in construction for 120 years of constant warning by God, this is coming. This will happen. 
So Noah was a last day's prophet. A prophet in the last days of earth before the first global destruction, a destruction by water. We can take the application of Jesus of the days of Noah and we can look and we can understand a couple of things. Number one, we'll know that they end with Israel saved just as Noah and his family were saved. Which by the way, side note, very interesting. Enoch was caught up. Enoch was raptured. Enoch is a picture of the church. Noah got into the ark and went through the flood, a picture of Israel through tribulation. Enoch went up first, as the church will go up first. Israel will go through tribulation as Noah went through the global flood. But along with that, we should also see direct parallels right now in our world today with these days of Noah. If these are the days of Noah, what do they look like? If we look back at the beginning of chapter one, and I know we already covered several verses on Sunday, but I gotta point a couple things out that we just skipped over because we were really looking closely at the sons of God and the Nephilim and what all that meant. If you haven't heard that, go back and listen. But if you go back to verse one of chapter six, it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them. And so the very first thing we note in the days of Noah was a dense population. A dense population, far more people on planet Earth than you might think at that time, a full planet. And so you ask the question, well, do we have a dense population on planet Earth today? Let me give you some numbers. In the days of Noah, centenarians were youngsters. My grandfather-in-law, who Cheryl and I just brought up from Southern California, he's living in Regency, had a good day today. And, and grandpa is, he said something today that just caught my attention. Cheryl was sharing with me. He said, well, I, I, he said I, I, I gotta learn to you know, be with my family more now because I haven't been able to be. I, I gotta learn. He said, I gotta learn. He's 101 years old. When I'm 101 years old, I'm done. No more learn. No, no, actually, I hope that if I should live that long, and I pray Jesus comes first, but should I live that long, I hope I'm still learning. But centenarians, that is 100-year-olds in Noah's day, babies, youngsters, whippersnappers. They were the young ones. People lived to be, and there's an actual word for it, non-centenarians. A non-centenarian, that's a 900-year-old. And that was typical of the age. Now think about that. They're living nearly a thousand years up in the 900s. Countless numbers of people also were born that are not listed in Genesis 4 and 5. Genesis 4, the line of Cain. Cain bad, no. The line of Cain and then Genesis 5, the line of Seth. And in those lineages, all we get primarily with one exception, and that's, that's a, a, a daughter. With one exception, we just get firstborns. The line of Seth gives us 10 generations of firstborns, but you know what else it says? Every single one of those firstborns are said to have had other sons and daughters. Chapter five, verse four, seven, 10, 13, 16, 19, 22, 26, and 30, jot that down. They all had sons and daughters. So all that's going on. Well, there was only 10 people named, yeah, and they had kids who had kids who had kids who had kids. If a man has four children, 
and lives long enough to see each one of his four children have four children of their own in five generations, that family unit will grow to be 96 people. Five generations, well, that, that's a long time, Rick. Yeah, in 10 generations, 96 jumps to 3,070. In 20 generations, and a generation, I'm not talking about like the generations that we see going from Adam all the way through the line of Seth, because those were long, gener I'm talking a generation being about 40 years, which is a biblical standard. So we're talking 40 years or so, in 20 generations, that original number of 96 at five generations, 3,070 at 10 generations, in 20 generations jumps to 3,120,000 people. 120, people. So over 3.1 million. In 30 generations, it soars to 3,220,000,000 people. Genesis 5, now note that, that's 30 generations of periods of about 40 years and people having children, having children, having children, soaring to 3.2 billion. Genesis 5 easily gives us the equivalent of 40 generations. So there is a great potential that the antediluvian world, that is the pre-flood world, may have been more densely populated than planet Earth is today. If you just run numbers. Now we don't know we weren't there. We can't give the exact. But it's likely that the earth was heavily populated. And we actually recently considered these numbers when we were in the Revelation study. I'm gonna throw these back out to you. It took from the flood then to 1867 for the world to get back to just one billion people. Why did it take so long? Well, the sun, for one thing, was no longer canopied. I mean, there's no longer that water canopy. There was no longer the tropical long life situation on earth. Now the sun is just beating down and wiping people out. Disease, plagues, violence, infant mortality, war, famine, etc. All has been going on. And so from the flood to 1867, it took us a while to get back up to a billion people. Not to mention the divine perspective or the divine limitation God put on the human lifespan of 120 years from Genesis chapter 6 verse 3. So it took a while to get back to a billion, but from 1867 to 1935, 68 years, it doubled, two billion. From 1935 to 1965, in just 30 years, it went to three billion, in spite of World War II, the Korean War, and Vietnam. From 1965 to 1995, now we're getting close to home, it doubled again. In 1995, we crossed six billion people. Today, and I'm talking about checking this morning, because I did, we have crossed 7.7 billion people on the planet. And by some estimates, good estimates, Earth's population is set to double every 15 years. 15 years from now, we'll have 14 billion people. That is a densely populated world. The world population exploding again as it did in the days of Noah. And my friends, the more dense the population, <laughs> the more dense the people. <laughs> we are living in a densely populated world right now. Back in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3, listen to this. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3 says, Know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? 
Forever since the fire. You just sang tonight, you, you Christians, like a bride waiting for her groom. We'll be a church ready for you. We're ready when? Where's the promise of his coming, they will say. Forever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. And the question is, is that so? Ever since the first people died on the planet, has everything just continued the way it always had without any change, without any judgment, without any issues? I mean, you know the answer to that. The flood came. And Peter says when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 39, they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. So a large population, but a dense population. And we live in a dense World, And I don't mean offense by that. And I'm not trying to paint myself or even Christians as the intellectual erudites, the elite. We're not. We're not always that intelligent. We just believe in Jesus, which is good because you don't have to be intelligent to believe in Jesus, which I know makes a lot of you really happy. Because you're looking at me saying, see, you don't have to be intelligent to believe in Jesus. See how I tried to turn that around there. The thing is, people are not looking for him. They're not believing he's coming. They really don't think it's gonna happen anytime soon. They really believe the majority in America look at Christians, especially rapture-ready Christians, as a little fringe, a little off. Who's the dense one? The one listening to the Lord? The one who's paying attention to the red flags? I'll tell you what. It was the dense population that went down in the flood. It was not the man building an ark in a dry land that had never known rain. He was not the dense man. So we see this massive population explosion. And again, population and density do seem to go hand in hand. The more people we have, the more dense we seem to become. You remember the old New York, uh, New York University rat study? Anybody remember reading that maybe back in high school where they put some rats in a cage and you had a handful of them and they got along okay and you put a few more in and they started to have some skirmishes and you pack the cage full and they just start killing each other right and left. What a picture of humanity. The more people, the more dense, the more dense, the more violent, we'll get to that. But the second thing to notice about the days of Noah is in verses two through four, what I would call a demonic Perversion. A dense population, secondly, a demonic perversion. That the sons of God saw the daughters of men were beautiful when? In the days of Noah. They took wives for themselves, whomever they chose, and the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever. His days, because he's also flesh, therefore, his days shall be 120 years. And I told you Sunday, that was a lifespan change after the flood, but it was also 120 years from this point to the flood. And the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old men of renown. Now we talked about the Bene Elohim on Sunday. And again, if you haven't heard that, that's kind of important for, I'm, I'm moving through it real fast right here. Bene Elohim, sons of God, fallen angels who took for themselves, not in marriage, but in sexual taking, daughters of men who then birthed these kind of superhuman mighty men. 
Sounds like a comic book story. This is legit. This really happened. Bene Elohim, fallen angels. And we talked about the Nephilim. Nephilim in the Hebrew means fallen ones. Sons of God, angels, fallen ones. And it's interesting because it actually led to some Goliath questions. <laughs> After first service, one young man came up to me. Rick, I have one question for you. What about Goliath? You said the Nephilim didn't survive the flood. There were no Nephilim after the flood. And I stand by that, by the way. I do not believe there were Nephilim after the flood. I know other pastors have taught Goliath was of the Nephilim. He was of the sons of Anak, the Anakim. And the Anakim were the Nephilim. And again, we talked about that on Sunday. Numbers chapter 13. Remember, it was the spies who went into the land, the faithless 10 spies, not Joshua and Caleb, but the other 10 who came back and said, the Nephilim are there, the Nephilim are there. They were trying to scare their brothers and sisters to not go into the land. It was not biblical fact, it was man's deception. And that's the only time we see the word Nephilim used after the flood. But again, there were some who said, yeah, but, but, but what about Goliath? Look again at verse four, listen closely. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, and that's what they'll point to. Before and after the flood. They were on the earth then, and they were on the earth afterward. And my friends, it's just out of context. It's taking verse four, and it's, bump, it's getting the cart before the horse. They were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Now, listen closely to this. The only survivors of the flood were Noah's family, right? Those eight people, that was it which would mean for Goliath to be of the Nephilim that that corrupt bloodline would have to be in the lineage of Noah. Hold on to that thought for a minute. I'm gonna come back to it. But this phrase also afterward doesn't mean after the flood. Look at it in the context where it's written. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. That is, there were Nephilim on the earth and they came in Try not to miss this. The sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. What are you saying, Rick? I don't know. No, I do know. <laughs> the Nephilim, fallen ones, were already on the earth in those days. And then they, also described as the Bene Elohim, the sons of God, came into the daughters of men. What I'm saying is the name Nephilim is both both stands alone as the offspring of the sons of God, but Nephilim is the sons of God. They're one and the same. The Bene Elohim, angels, what does Nephilim mean? Fallen ones. What were the angels on earth at that time? Fallen ones. And the fallen ones came in to the daughters of men who then bore more fallen ones, like father, like son. Like Nephilim, like Nephilim. The before and after is that the Nephilim were on earth in those days. Who were the Nephilim? The sons of God, the angels. Fallen angels were on the earth and then they came in with the daughters of men, took them to themselves and afterwards, now you've got more Nephilim and it started to spread. Which is part of why God said, I have to stop this now. This cannot continue the bloodline of humanity is getting corrupted right and left. 
But the greater point here in verse four, and however you take this, again, it's not a salvation issue as I said on Sunday, but however you take this, the main idea here is there is an historically perverted relationship between sexual immorality and demonic activity. And that is something Americans do not believe. We don't believe that at all. Because if we did, we wouldn't see so much sexual immorality in the American church. I'm talking Christians who really don't buy that sexual immorality is in any way connected to demonism. Maybe you've never thought about it that way. The way, unfortunately, many Christians in my, my generation, and by the way, I, I take some ownership for this, my generation kind of grew up saying, oh, that's not that big a deal, is it? Sexual immorality? He loves her, she loves him, they're together. They probably shouldn't be doing that before they're married, but hey, they're good people. Not that big, at least they're not gay. No difference. There's no difference. The Bible does not delineate between sexual immorality of a man and a woman or sexual immorality of a man and a man or a woman and a woman. It's all sexual immorality because it's all outside of God-ordained marriage. What I'm saying here is the Bible goes further than just, eh, it's a flesh thing. No, it's a spirit thing. It is perverted demonic activity, and that's what was going on. You know what fallen angels are? They're demons. That's what they are. That's what they became as they followed the leader of demons, the devil himself, who was himself a fallen angel. And so there's this, interesting, sick, perverted connection between demonism and sexual immorality, and it goes right down through history, and we are living in days of broad, immoral tolerance for that very thing. And what's tragic, again, is when Christians, when the church itself looks at sexual immorality and says, ah, you know what? It's not that big a deal. It is an invitation to demonic activity. Where in the world do you get that? Well, I was hoping you'd ask. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 15. Do you not know, Paul writes, that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her, for he says, the two shall become one flesh, Genesis 2.24. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Here's the problem, Christians. You join to the Lord. You give your life to Jesus. You now have an intimate connection, you and the Lord. And if you have the same intimate connection in the flesh with a prostitute, let's just stay on that topic for a second. With a prostitute, you've now joined yourself to a prostitute, but you're already joined to the Lord. Guess what you just did? You just joined the Lord to a prostitute through you. But it's more than that. See, that's just flesh. That's just flesh. You know what prostitute is here in 1 Corinthians 6? It's temple prostitute. What kind of temples? Demons false gods. Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 11, don't you know that, that, that it's the cup of demons? That if you're, if you're following false gods or you're going to these temples, it's demonic? There's no other, you know, 
that's what this representation is. So, so Christians in Paul's day, if they came out of that pagan belief and gave their lives to Jesus, but then still went on the traditional holidays to the pagan temple, still were connected to the temple prostitute, Paul is saying, you can't do that. Do you realize what your, your body, well, he goes on. He says, flee immorality, pornea, sexual immorality. Run away from it. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body. But the immoral man, the sexually immoral man, sins against his own body, and then Paul brings it home. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? Therefore, you have been bought with a price. Glorify God with your body. It's not just a flesh thing. It is a spirit issue. Will I glorify God with my body and soul and spirit or will I be connecting that beautiful intimacy with sexual immorality? That's what was happening in the days of Noah. That's the sexual perversion that was going on and we're living in days very similar to that. Back in Genesis chapter six, verse five. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was, wait, 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 stop a second. Before I go to verse five. Can I just say something to y'all? Because anytime I talk about sexual immorality, I am fully aware that there's probably someone in the room shrinking in the seat, thinking, that's me, and everyone knows. First of all, none of us know. You've hit it really well. But secondly, you know what's marvelous about the grace of our God? Is right now, if you were connecting yourself if you were sexually immoral, if there was something going on there, if you were inviting that kind of demonic perversion into your life, right now, you call the name of Jesus. Right now, you get clean. Right now, you say no more of that. Amen. You repent. I'm done. Oh, well, if it's that easy, I'll just come every Wednesday night and say, no, no, see, now you're misunderstanding. Now you're trampling all over God's grace. But don't sit in guilt and shame and judgment when you can repent to the Lord and be saved and be free and be clean. So, verse five. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I can make that case today. The depth of man's wickedness on the earth. Now, the King James translates verse five Every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. NASB says every intent of his heart, and intent is probably a better word. What's translated either imagination of the heart or intent of the heart is yetzer, yetzer in the Hebrew, and it speaks of an intentionality. When that word is used, it speaks of one who is intentional in what they're doing. And so this isn't just wickedness, people doing wicked things that they haven't really thought about. This isn't just someone accidentally sinning, oh, I didn't even know that was wrong, you know? This is, I know exactly what I'm doing and I'm gonna do it. I've said this before, I think that was the attitude of Adam. Eve was deceived. Adam knew exactly what he was doing. Eve was entrapped by Satan. Adam saw what was going on and took the fruit anyway. 
So we're talking about intentional sinning, the intentions of the heart, evil continually. And by the way, that word yetzer is the exact same word Moses uses in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, to describe how the Lord God formed man intentionally. That when God created man, that was on his heart. And he intended to do exactly as he did to create man in his own image. In the image of God, he created us. Male and female, he created them. God intended to do that, but here, here, the intent of the heart is absolute wickedness. Number three, in the days of Noah, it is a depraved premeditation. A depraved premeditation. By the way, the word thoughts here, you know, every intent of the thoughts of the heart, the word thoughts is mashabot, which means invention. What we're talking about here is the intentional invention of iniquity. People going out to find new ways to be more wicked than they were before. I could add one I word to that sentence, the intentional invention of iniquity via the internet. When you realize that internet pornography is 85% of the traffic on the internet, 85%. Now think about how you use the internet. And by the way, if you're using it that way, repent. Repent. Connect yourself to the Lord. He will forgive. He will cleanse. He will straighten out. He'll even give you the strength to stop. But you got to bring it to him. Don't think you're strong enough on your own. But 85% is pornography of the web traffic, which means of all the usage that we have for other things, business, my, my Bible studies and church studies, going looking at news, uh, social media, everything that's out there, that's 15% compared to the wickedness that covers 85. I mean, that's unbelievable. Talk about a depraved premeditation. And you look at, at, at the way that people in our world today are trying to invent new ways of doing old evils. No wonder God was so grieved. The Lord was sorry, verse six, that he had made man on the earth. And he was grieved in his heart. And I said on Sunday, you're not grieved about something unless it pains you, unless you are deeply passionate. If I were to lose my beloved bride, I would be grieved because I adore her. I was even a little grieved when I lost Reggie, my cute little dog. Because he, he mattered to me. He's just a dog, but he mattered to me. God was grieved over the planet. This is not an angry, spiteful, vengeful God looking down and saying, I'm sick and tired of it. You know, just knocking the planet off its kilter. This is God looking at what was going on and going, no. By the way, he knew it was going to happen. He wasn't surprised. But he was grieved. Said in verse seven, the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created. Note the ownership. You could almost say the personal responsibility. I created this. I made them with a, a free will. I gave them the opportunity to choose to rebel against me and be wicked. I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. The King James translation says, it repents me that I have made man. Does God repent? 
Bible says in Numbers 23, 19, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? God doesn't repent. He's not about to change direction here. The direction was planned out because I happen to know, Revelation 13 tells us, that Jesus Christ was the lamb slain from the foundations of the world. The lamb was already slain as far as God was concerned. The lamb was headed to the cross before God breathed life into Adam because God knew what man would choose. So God's not about to change direction here, but he is pained, he is sorrowful. He knew this world would come to this. Some would say, well then why create mankind at all? Why even mess with the prospect? Why plant the tree? Why give man choice? Why allow them to choose this direction of evil or wickedness? And the answer is very simply because God is love. He created out of love. He gave freedom out of love. You see, forced love, well, that's what we call rape. And God is not a rapist. God loves. God created because, I mean, just imagine the Bible says God is love, so he is love in and of himself. It's not that love describes God, it's that God describes love. He is love. And in all of that love that is, is God, it's almost like I gotta make some more people to love here. I love all you angels. I love you cherubim. Four faces, cool, but I gotta, I gotta love more. I gotta love more. So he creates. I want them to love me by choice. So we have choice. And Noah, verse eight, actually it's, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Thank God that he did because we wouldn't be here tonight. If no one had found favor in the eyes of the Lord, we would not be here. And my friends, the only thing that can save then and now is the favor of the Lord, the grace of of the Lord. Romans 5.20 says the law came in so transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. God's grace is greater than the sin of man, which is why Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Paul says, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through the righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So Noah found and we talked about this Sunday. He didn't, he didn't inherit favor. He didn't work for favor. He didn't earn favor. He found favor. It's like he ran into it. Whoa, favor. And where did he find it? In the eyes of the Lord. Because that's always where you find grace. And that brings us to verse nine, which says, these are the generations of Noah. Your Bible may say the records of the generations of Noah, and that's trying to get across a point, and that is we are now to the third toldot. If you've been keeping track of this, remember I told you in Genesis there are 12 toldotes, or actually in the, in the Hebrew scriptures, 12 toldotes. No, it is in Genesis. And it's for breaking down. You can use it to follow kind of as a pattern through, through the book of Genesis, 12 toldotes. This is now number three, and a toldot is a generation or a what became of. So now we're at the point, verse nine, this is what became of Noah is how that would read in the Hebrew. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time or in his generations, and Noah walked with God. 
righteous and blameless man. Righteous is the word sadiq. And it speaks specifically of spiritual justification. So Noah was spiritually justified before God. God looked at the spirit of the man and said, justified. I love the word justified. You know how, how to kind of tweak that a little bit? To be justified is to be just as if I'd never sinned. And Noah was justified in spirit. But the next word is interesting to me because it's tamim. Tamim in the Hebrew, the word blameless. And it literally means, well, it's a word used of sacrifice. Pure, spotless sacrifice. Blameless sacrifice. They would use that for the sacrificial animal. It had to be tamim. But what this literally describes here, note this, is physically free from defect. And this word saying that Noah was blameless in his generations may actually be stating something vital in understanding the Nephilim, and that is Noah's bloodline was, was pure. Noah's blood, his physical man was blameless, was pure, that his bloodline was not corrupt. So he was justified in spirit and physically speaking, no Nephilim genes. Which is another reason why I do not believe there were Nephilim after the flood. Got down to Noah and his family who stood before God with a bloodline that was not corrupted as was so much of the earth at that time. But I read this and I think, wow, I gotta meet this guy Noah. I wanna meet a truly righteous and blameless guy. I want to see what that means because there are other places in scripture that call on us to be blameless and I think, wow. You know, they talk about shepherds in a church fellowship being above reproach, like that's possible. So here comes this Noah who's blameless and righteous. By the way, I happen to know that Noah gets drunk later in the story, not tonight, but come on, Noah. He's righteous and he's blameless. How do you get there? How do you get there? Maybe you're the one I was talking about earlier who has the sexual immorality in, in, in the last you know, month and you're going, ugh, ugh, I could never be blameless and righteous. Really? By faith, Noah. Hebrews eleven seven. How do you find righteousness? By faith. How do you find blamelessness? By faith. By faith in Jesus Christ. By trusting Jesus Christ. Hebrews eleven seven again says, note this, by faith, Noah being warned by God about things not yet seen, which would include rain, it had not rained. No one knew what rain was like. In reverence, he prepared an ark for the salvation of his household by which he condemned the world. And note that, it wasn't that Noah was out condemning the world, it's just he was obeying God and his very act of obedience was condemning to the world. They didn't like that. It'll happen with you. Just follow Jesus and people are gonna feel uncomfortable around you. People, people are gonna feel condemned just because you happen to say, look, I believe in Jesus. Be encouraged. That's a good place to be. Someone's condemning you for faith in Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord, your faith is evident. And it's by faith you become blameless. It's by faith you become righteous and Noah became an heir of the righteousness, which again, Hebrews 11 says, is according to faith. 
So Paul would write, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the righteous man shall live by working really hard and pulling himself up by his bootstraps and doing all the right things. No, the righteous man will live by faith, faith. Now, I, I, I think about this, and I think about Noah, and what did this faith look like? What did it look like in the days of such corruption and wickedness? You know it had to stand out. So what did this faith of Noah look like? And among believers, I've seen believers, and I myself have been this guy, some people who want to run for the Lord. Man, I want to do big things. I want to soar to great heights. I want to conquer glorious mountains of challenges in the name of the Lord. I want my name to be alongside the big names of followers of Jesus down across 2,000 years. I want to be one of those Spurgeons. You know, I want to be a Moody I want to be remembered for all. Oh, oh, careful. Now you're wanting to be a man of renown. Last people we saw like that were the Nephilim. But there are those who, that's what I want to do. How did Noah express his faith? Noah walked. It's that walk word again. Noah just walked. Noah spent, watch this, 120 years building a boat. Really? I mean, think about the evangelistic campaigns he could have held across 120 years. Think of the, of the worlds he could have visited, the nations he could have gone to, the people. How many doors could he have knocked on in 120 years? Just building his boat faithfully, just doing what God said to do. Man, think about how that parallels the days of Jesus. Neither one of them had social media. I mean, come on, Lord, if you're gonna come to the world, come at a time when you can really tell everybody at the same time what you need to say. No, Jesus, like Noah, walked and he sailed. That's all he did. Noah walked with God. Noah built a boat, got into the boat, sailed. Jesus walked everywhere he went. We've talked about this. The only sailing he did was on the Galilee. He didn't even get out on the Mediterranean for crying out loud. Jesus, sail across to Europe. Tell someone over there. Jesus was kind of a homeboy. Nazareth, the Galilee, a few trips down to Jerusalem, walking, slowly. Man, that is just not a prescription for getting out the word. And yet, Noah and Jesus Two names you could say to almost anybody today, believer or not, and they're gonna know exactly who you're talking about. Noah just walked. That's faith. 120 years of building a boat. You know what? That's incredible faith because God told him to do it. Now, did God have to get up every day, wake up Noah? Noah, get to work. I really wonder. I wonder how many times across 120 years God spoke to Noah. Think about that. The Bible only tells us he told him to build the ark and Noah got to work. So we have no idea. Now, I, I know the Lord. I know the character of the Lord. I'm assuming he probably every now and then said, hey, Noah, how you doing, bro? But I don't know that. 
What I do know is God said, build the boat, and Noah started and did not stop until it was done. What if he had? What if he quit before the boat was seaworthy? What if he stopped? What if he just got tired, you know, I don't know, 70 years in? And for those of you who have been waiting for the Lord to do something big in your life, let me just tell you the biggest thing you can possibly do is just walk with God. Be faithful to where he has you. Don't deny the name of Jesus. Be willing to share the name of Jesus, but keep doing what he's given you to do. For Noah, it was build a boat. And we might say, yeah, but that that just couldn't work today. Today, I I, I wanna do for the Lord. Okay, let me give you something you can do for the Lord. Look at verse 10. Noah became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. You wanna do great things for God, walk at home. Walk at home. Teach your sons. Teach your daughters. Tell your brothers. Tell your sisters. Love your family. One of the most powerful, potent things a follower of Jesus Christ can do today is love those in his own or her own house. Do that. That's all? Well, if God gives you something else, great. But if God doesn't give you something else, do that. Walk at home. Deuteronomy 6, verse 6 says, These words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons. You shall talk of them when you sit down in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. Note that when Moses is talking to Israel, he gives them four things to do. Walk, lie down, rise up, and sit. And while you're doing those four things, talk about Jesus. Man, that's as simple as building a boat. Right. That's the point. We're not called to scale the great heights. Now, some are. There are the Spurgeons. There are the Moody's. They hear the call and off they go and God does great things while other believers are standing around going, well, how come I didn't get to preach to 5,000 people all at once? How come when I went to Europe, I just got on, I mean, I, I went to Europe, 21 years old, went on a tour, No one showed up to hear me preach. D.L. Moody goes up over there, 30,000 people show up. He wasn't that good a preacher. But you know what? Moody was doing what God said he wanted him to do. That's why he went. So if God tells you, do a great thing, do a great thing. But if he hasn't told you to do a great thing, then you go home and you love husbands, your wives, wives, your husbands, love your kids, love your grandkids, tell them about Jesus, walk at home in the name of the Lord. And by the way, one man in the days of Noah walked with God. And in these days, and it encourages me, there are still a few who are. That's another little sign that I see in these days of Noah. There are people still walking with God. Maybe not as many in other, as in other times, but there are still people walking with God. Praise the Lord. It's still going on. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5 again says, God preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And Noah, during the building of the ark, clearly the Bible tells us, preached for 120 years. So he wasn't just swinging a hammer. He was swinging a hammer and he was answering questions. And anyone who wandered by to see this behemoth of a boat, he told them about the judgment of God. He told them about the love of God. Plenty of room on the boat. 
Save you a spot. If you want to get saved, Noah was a preacher of righteousness for 120 years with, again, that great big red flag object lesson, the ark. And yet, here's the fourth. The fourth thing we see is parallel to the days of Noah, a disregard for the preaching of the word. And those are the days we live in. The fact that as many of you are out here tonight is awesome. It is a testimony to the word of God that you're here and you're listening because the truth is many are now just disregarding the word, not listening to the word. Paul told Timothy, expect it. Second Timothy chapter four, verse two, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove and rebuke and exhort with great patience and instruction for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. They will disregard the preaching of the word of God. Do we see that in our world today? Tragically, yeah, we do. We see churches turning away from just teaching the word to all other manner of, you know, 15-minute homilies, get them in, get them out quick, because people are busy. People got more important things to do. Really? I'm not sure of anything more important than being in the word of God. Well, I can think of one, praying. Prayer in the word. Most difficult thing, and just share this from my heart, the most difficult thing about preaching the word is when you know it's gone unheeded. Things that, that I'll share from here, that, and, and again, it's not me, it's not my word, but things that we'll talk about in the scriptures and then Something will happen, word will come back to me, someone who was there and heard it and knew exactly what they were doing and yet chose to do the opposite and you just go, oh. Really hurts when I'm that person. <laughs> James chapter one, verse 21 says, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, as in the days of Noah, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls, but prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. So we could pack out this auditorium, but if all we do is hear and then walk out and there's no life change, what good has it done us? James says you're like someone who's looked at their face in a mirror, you walk away and forget what you looked like, which happens all the time. In my case, thankfully, but still. Don't. Just be a hearer, be a doer. Verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. And then God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me. For the earth is, and he repeats the phrase again, filled with violence because of them, and behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. Twice, he declares the proof of all this corruption and decay comes down to, number five in your list, a devastating prevalence of violence. A devastating prevalence of violence. By the way, Bible students, you know what the Hebrew word for violence is? Interesting, Hamas. Hamas in the Hebrew is Violence, it literally translates a destructive cruelty, even an injustice, and God hates violence. And you know what? I think with the exception of sexual immorality, violence is one of the biggest days of Noah issues in this country. 
violence. We are a violent people. Oh, we're not that violent, are we? First of all, note this, Psalm 11:5. the Lord tests the righteous and the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul, God's soul, hates. Upon the wicked he will rain snares. Fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. And the upright will behold his face. But here in the days of Noah, Genesis chapter six, we've now gone from Cain who killed Abel to Lamech who boasted of killing a man and a boy. Now in just, in just these generations to the entire earth is just filled with violence. It's everywhere. And in our culture, we can't get enough. And I'm just saying it is what it is. And I am not pointing fingers because I can get into a good violent movie. And we think that's okay. It's funny, years and years ago, Cheryl and I were, were newly, newly wed and we were talking about our movie choices. And we kind of said, you know, we probably need to not watch movies with a whole lot of language. Because I recognized in my young man's self, the more I heard it, the more I said it. The more it got into my head, the more it needed to come out my mouth. And if I had just heard, you know, certain words said over and over in a movie the night before and I got mad the next day, guess what? So I said, you know, I need to get away from movies that have a lot of language in them. And then we talked about it some more and realized, you know, I really don't need all those visual images of, of the sexual things that are in so movies, so, so many movies. So let's just, let's stop and say no rated R, period. We just won't watch rated R movies anymore, which is a bummer because, you know, then the good ones come out. It's like the next day you hear about this great movie. Oh, I want to watch that. It's rated R. Oh. <laughs> Can we make an exception? So we make, you know, no sexual stuff, we don't want to see that, and no language, we don't want to see that. But violence, that's cool. It's just violence, you know. It's Hollywood magic, you know, when his head comes flying off, that's just, you know, it's not real. Violence. Violence saturates American entertainment. So I'm not even talking about gun violence. We all know about that. I'm talking about just our everyday lives and it's not just violent gaming. And by the way, some of y'all are playing some incredibly violent games and you need to stop. It's not healthy for you spiritually. You are damaging your spiritual self. Just saying. Well, you're picking on the gamers. No, I'm not. This generation of gamers grew up watching their parents extol violence in sports. When was the last time you enjoyed a good boxing match? It's just one guy beating the snot out of another one who then beats the snot back until one of them doesn't have any snot left and they fall on the ground. And... What was the, the recent fight where, where the guy actually died, went into a coma and died? Is that okay? That's like gladiator violence. When someone dies in a sport, well, this is going on. And for all the pads in football, and I love football and, and I, I'm walking a very fine line here. I understand in Seahawk country. So let's move away from sports. How about movies? and our books, and our entertainment, and what we enjoy, and yet gun violence is the big concern in America right now. Well, where did gun violence come from? It didn't come from the gun. You know what Jesus says? It came from the heart. It's a heart issue. <laughs> My father-in-law, Bill, has an arsenal locked up in a gun safe 
as a hobby. I've never seen anybody more meticulously careful with, with guns than, than Bill Morgan is. Bill's not gonna go out and shoot anybody. And trust me, I've given him plenty of reason. <laughs> My friends, no amount of gun control is gonna solve the problem in America. They didn't have guns in the days of Noah and it was violence that was the straw that broke the camel's back. There were no guns in those days. Violence was the issue. Violence that comes out of the heart. What they had in those days was, as we've covered already tonight, a dense population, a demonic perversion, a depraved premeditation, a disregard for preaching of the word, and a devastating prevalence of violence. These are the days of Noah. Good news, they will not continue. As they did back then, they did not continue. And Isaiah 60, verse 18 says, violence will not be heard again in your land, nor devastation or destruction within your borders, but you will call your walls salvation and your gates praise. And it never would have been possible if God hadn't sent the rescue boat. All right, we've been here for a while. Do you wanna go a little further or do you wanna stop now? Okay, I blame all of you. Look at verse 14. We can move pretty quickly, but watch this. Make for yourself, the Lord says, an ark of gopher wood. You shall make the ark with rooms. The word rooms there is an interesting word. It's nests. Make a bunch of nests in the ark. And you shall cover it inside and out with pitch. How did one man build an ark? Very simply, his sons pitched in. <laughs> Actually, if you do the math, Noah started building the ark 20 years before Shem, his firstborn son, was born into the world, which expresses the faith of Noah. Again, Hebrews 11:7 7 says, by faith Noah prepared an ark for the salvation of his household. He didn't have a household when he started building. You know what that means? Younger people who have no children or a spouse yet, you can start building the ark right now. Don't get weird on me. Don't go outside and, you know, next time I drive into the church, you're out there. But no, you can start preparing for the salvation of your household right now. Don't wait. Well, I don't even know who my husband's gonna be, she says. Don't wait. Start preparing by faith in the Lord Jesus, by living for the Lord Jesus. And your children, when they come, 20 years from now, will benefit. So Noah had faith. But he covered the whole ark inside and out with pitch. And it's really interesting, this word pitch in the Hebrew, because it's not the usual Hebrew word. There's a word in the Hebrew for the tar-like water-sealing substance that you would think that that's what he's using. And, and indeed, he probably was using that other word, but that's not the word that Moses in writing inspired Torah. That's not what Moses chose. Moses chose for the word pitch, kofer. Kofer, which is the root word for kafar, as in yom kafar, the day of atonement. The word pitch covered inside and out is the word in the Hebrew for atonement. Atonement, why? Atonement means covering. And so he covered the ark inside and out. There's something atoning in the ark itself, in the salvation of Noah and his family. They were covered. Don't worry, Noah, when the rains start to come and the floods start to rise, I got you covered with this pitch, with atonement. 
Leviticus 17, 11 says, the life of the flesh is in the blood and I've given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. Kephor or kafar. It is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. So you could say the arch was pitch perfect. And the ark, this covering, kept out, kept away the deluge of judgment in the same way that the atoning blood of Jesus washes you clean, covers you against judgment. In fact, better than covering, the blood of Jesus cleanses us completely against the flood of God's wrath. Hebrews 9.22 says, according to the law, one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So in the same way God had Noah cover the ark that he might be covered through the flood, Jesus' blood is his way of saying to you, I've got you covered. Should you ever question your salvation, the way to stop questioning is look at the blood of Jesus and ask yourself this question, is his blood enough? Of course it is. Is my behavior enough? No. Is his blood enough? Yes, I am saved by his blood. I'm covered, I'm cleansed. Verse 15, this is how you shall make it, the ark that is. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, its breadth 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits, which I know you all can figure out real quickly, but I'll just help you. That's 440 feet long by 73 feet wide by 44 feet high, and it's huge. The interior of the ark measured by this square footage is 1.5 million cubic feet inside the ark. It's so big, you could define that as 95,700 square feet. This thing was huge. Have you seen the ark encounter or at least seen pictures of it in Kentucky? I gotta get out there and see it. I know a few of our families have actually gone out to the ark encounter. If you will go online tonight and look up ark encounter, and check it out. Look at pictures of it, it's, it's massive. It's right. It's built to these specs. And you can get a real good sense of how big this barge really was. Absolutely huge, biggest, by the way, today it is the biggest timber structure in the world today, the Ark Encounter. And it certainly was the biggest one back then, built of gopher wood. Verse 16, you shall make a window for the ark and finish it to a cubit from the top. You shall set a door of the ark in the side of it. And you shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. So a window in the Hebrew, literally an opening of light. And, and we think the, the design meant that it was a window that went all the way around the, topper, the, the uppermost of the ark, the top part of it. You know, so maybe with, with wood holding up, but, but all the way around that allowed natural light to flow in and it would allow obviously for a ventilation system with all those animals, you're gonna need ventilation. Who's gonna clean up that mess down there? I, you know, so a ventilation system and daylight for the window. Three levels with these rooms all over the place, nests if you will. Each one of these levels based on these uh, specs would have been 15 feet. So 15 foot ceilings, your average home today is what, eight, nine feet? A nine foot home, you got plenty of room, 15. For each one of the three decks, plenty of room inside for all the inhabitants, and I mean all of them, but I wanna point out to you the strangest of all the specs to me, and that is one door. One door for the entire boat. 
My friends, that is a cruise line safety hazard. <laughs> you gotta have more than one door. There's just, there's just the one door. I remember someone one time talking about the Brady Bunch. Remember the old Brady Bunch? The father's an architect, you know, and they had two bedrooms, one bathroom, six kids, and he's an architect. How does that work? <laughs> Obviously didn't plan it out, but one door on this boat, just one that's dangerous unless you're sailing with the Lord. Bible tells us in Mark chapter four, verse 38, that Jesus was in a boat, sound asleep in the stern, asleep on a cushion, had a little pillow under his head, and they woke him up, and they said, teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? And he got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, hush, be still. And the wind died down, and it became perfectly calm, and he said to them, why are you afraid? How is it that you have no faith? And the point is this. One door is all I need when I'm sailing with Jesus. All I need is one door in the storm. Truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus said, John chapter 10, I am the door. I'm the door of the sheep. He says in verse nine of John 10, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and he will go out and will find pasture. All Noah and family needed was one door. God's got him covered. God will get him through. All you gotta do is get into the ark and then walk out of the ark. That's all. Not multiple doors. Which one should we use? No, just go in that one. I love how God does that. I love that Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. One door. Because if there were two doors, we would argue and not go in either one. And if there were multiple doors all over the world, we would be so confused. Don't you just love the philosophy? Now all rivers lead to the sea. Well, which one should I take? I don't know. So we sit on the shore. One door. One way to the Father, one Jesus. It's that simple. Verse 17, behold, I, the Lord says, even I am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life from under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall perish, but I will establish my covenant with you. Oh, we'll get to that in chapters eight and nine. And you shall enter the ark, you and your sons, and your wife and your son's wives with you. And every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you, and they shall be male and female. Here's where the skeptic begins to laugh. Oh, come on, two of all the animals. Uh, of the birds after their kind, and of the animals after their kind, note that, and every creeping thing of the ground after its kind, two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. And as for you, take for yourself some of all the food which is edible, Gather it to yourself. Remember at that point, they're still vegetarians, so they couldn't eat these animals. So they had to take food along with them, and it shall be food for you and for them. Now listen, we already saw this as a big boat. And it is. It's absolutely humongous. But it couldn't have been big enough for all these animals. Let's do the math. According to Biologists today, there are approximately 18,000, get this, 18,000 species of animals on the earth. Not animals, because within each species, like we have a species of dogs, and then we got a whole big variety of dogs, but there's, there's the one species. 
So there are 18,000 species of animals today that other animals can grow out of within that species, right? And let's double the number from 18,000. Let's go up to 36,000 just to say across the history of the world, some species have gone extinct. So let's be generous. Let's say we've lost half of all the species, which is not true, but let's just, let's just again, be generous. So we're up at, to 36,000 animals. And to account for the extinct species, uh, 36,000, and then we'll allow two of each kind. So you gotta go from 36, now you're 72,000 animals to get onto one boat. But the Lord also commands Noah in chapter seven to bring five pairs of all the clean animals. So let's round up, 72,000, let's just take it up and say around 75,000 animals. On one boat with one door. Come on, pastor. Using the cubic measurements we shared a moment ago, that is 440 feet long, 73 feet wide, 44 feet high. The capacity of the ark would be 1.4 million cubic feet, which is the capacity equal to 522 railroad livestock cars. You know how many sheep you can get into 522 railroad livestock cars? And I'm picking sheep because that's a good average size for animals. There are some bigger, many smaller, right? So you gotta count for size. But let's go with sheep right up the middle and you can get one livestock car holding 240 sheep. 522 livestock cars would hold 125,000 sheep. All we need room for is 75,000, which means that on the ark, after all the animals came in, there would still be room for an additional 50,000 if we wanted to. The ark would have been 60% full if you had two of every species plus five of each one of the clean animals plus Noah and his family and their food stores, you'd be 60% full. You still got 40% space for a pool deck, dining hall, shuffleboard court, restaurants, a theater. There was tons of room on the ark, but people go, oh, animals, boat, no, can't have, come on. It, it, it figures. It works out easily. Oh, yeah? What about elephants? Well, an elephant could be problematic. You know, you've seen the children's play toys with the giraffe's neck sticking out for 40 days and 40 nights. Oh, man. <laughs> That's mythological. What, there were no giraffes? No, I think there were probably baby giraffes, baby elephants. Think about this. It makes sense. They had to be on the ark. They were on the ark a long time, right? And so while they were on the ark, not only would young animals save space and help with overall maintenance, <laughs> but they had to go a year without reproducing. So you'd be an idiot if you put two full-grown male, a female elephant on the ark with nothing to do for a year. <laughs> now you got problems, right? Now that 40% is getting filled up really fast. The point is, Noah did not choose the animals. God did. Noah didn't even go get them. I love that. You, if you've seen Noah movies and they're always lame, you know, he's out there trying to gather the creatures. Oh, I gotta get the, no, no, he just built the ark and, and here they came, which must have been a hoot. You know, as the two alligators go walking by, what's up? And in they go. Shem, they're on your deck. 
So again, plenty of space, plenty of room. And the bottom line is if you honestly want answers from the Bible, they are all here. Seek and you will find. Verse 22. Thus Noah did according to all that God had commanded him, so he did. These are the days of Noah in which we live. And the question is, Will you live like the world of Noah's day or will you live like Noah in the world of his day? So that's our choice. We can live like the world or we can live like Noah in obedience to all God asks of us. That's what's amazing about Noah. God said it, he did it. Obedience. He just obeyed. And Jesus says, John 14, 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. He doesn't say, if you keep my commandments, you will prove you love me. He said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Why? Because the more I love my wife, the more I'll do anything she asks me to do. The more I love a person, the more willing I am just to serve them and obey if they have a, a need or an issue or something I can help with. Love produces obedience, and that's always the way it works with God. In fact, note this, it was in verse 8 that we saw Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, and then in verse 22, we see that Noah did all that God commanded him. Guess what came first? Grace, favor. It wasn't Noah did all that was commanded and found favor by being good and obedient. No, he had grace first, and then because he was graced, he walked in obedience. The favor preceded the work. That's how it works with Jesus. His favor is outstretched for you, for me tonight. He says, I love you, I wanna forgive you, I wanna save you, here's my grace. And I start to walk in that grace and go, wow. Jesus, I will do whatever you ask. Not because I think it's gonna earn me anywhere. It's not gonna get me a place on the boat. God's favor does that. Psalm 34, 15, quoted by Peter in 1 Peter 3, 12, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears attend to their prayer. And again, righteousness, it comes by faith, not by work, and obedience follows faith. You know the old hymn, trust and obey? That's how it works. Trust, and you'll obey. The obedience will come. It always does. So Jesus said, these are the days of Noah. The question is, Luke 18, verse eight, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Father, I pray that you will. I ask, Lord Jesus, right here tonight, just among our small group gathered, that you will find faith. I pray, should you determine that tonight's the night, and oh, Lord, I wish you would, but should you call us home tonight, I pray that that call will resound in every single heart in this room. I pray that not a one of us will walk out of here without faith in Jesus Christ, without the grace and favor that you offer that we cannot earn. And Lord, we praise your name for such a love, for such a favor. And we pray, Lord, as we receive that grace on ourselves, as we receive the love and the forgiveness that you offer, that we would turn around and joyfully walk in obedience. In Jesus' name. <laughs>